You're listening to Excess Advantage, a Genesis RPG podcast designed to help you level up your games. This is Season 3, Episode 1, Vehicles. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the vehicle rules found in the Genesis Core Rulebook. We're going to be discussing what a vehicle is, how they work, what actions and maneuvers are available to vehicles, and how a vehicle combat differs than personal scale combat. And I'm your host, Christopher. With the recent release of the Expanded Player's Guide, which includes rules for creating your own custom vehicles, there has been a resurgence in interest in vehicles in recent times in the Genesis community. And seeing as how no one has done a deep dive in vehicle rules yet, I figured that um, being a subject matter expert, I would record an episode to kind of demystify vehicles for everybody. My personal favorite part of any role-playing game is space combat specifically, but I will make do with a giant stompy robots or um, aerial combat if it's not space capable campaign. But I just love vehicles. I love vehicle rules. The first thing I did when I got my hands on the Genesis core book was flip to the vehicle chapter to see how they streamlined vehicle combat from Star Wars, which I have to say they did a really good job on making tweaks to, so it's better to play at the table, but still you can see those roots in there. And I'm not going to get into the differences between Star Wars and Genesis vehicle in this episode. If that's something y'all want me to do, feel free to get a hold of me and let me know. Otherwise, um, we're just going to leave it at that. But few notes that I want to bring up before we get into the deep dive is that vehicle rules are found on pages 120 to 131 of your core rulebook. They're in Part 3, Game Master's Toolkit, Chapter 2, Alternate Rules. So this is the same chapter where you find the hacking rules, the vehicle rules, the attachment rules, Nemesis Extra Activation, all of those optional rules. So if you get nothing else from this episode, know that vehicles are optional in your game. There is no yes or no, you must have or you can't have. Just know that if you want them, they are there. It's up to the GM to decide whether or not the vehicles will be used in their game. Um, there are a lot of times where there's an obvious yes, we should use vehicles. For example, in a space opera game where the player characters are part of a starfighter squadron, yes, you're going to want to use vehicle rules. Are you playing a weird war game where your player characters are a tank crew? You're going to want to use the vehicle rules because for a majority of the game sessions, your characters will be interacting directly with the vehicles and interacting with the environment through those vehicles. But if you're playing a, say, a fantasy game where you're dealing with a lot of political intrigue and uh, the player characters are sent on escort quests and clear out the dungeon quests and all of that stuff where everything is done either on foot or on horseback, you're not going to need to use the vehicle rules because the player characters never actually interact with the vehicle. You have your obvious yes and obvious no of when you should use the vehicle rules, but in between that is a huge gray area. And the easiest way to figure out as a GM if you should use vehicle rules is ask yourself one simple question. Will my player characters be interacting with vehicles at least 40% of game sessions? If the answer is no, then don't use them. If the answer is yes, think about using them and then decide what exactly they're gonna be doing with those vehicles before you decide yes or no. For example, in a modern day game, a lot of characters are going to have a personal use 
vehicle of some kind, either a truck or a car or a motorcycle or something. They have their own personal conveyance. If they don't, they probably will be hopping on a bus or on a train to travel. Well, the adventure isn't happening while they're in the vehicle. The adventure happens when they get to their destination. In those instances, you're not going to need to use the vehicle rules because the vehicles aren't taking part in the action. They are just background reason to get your characters from point A to point B. You might have car chases or something in that modern game where your characters are going to interact with vehicles where you think, oh, well, I have to create vehicles from a setting just in case this happens. But you still don't need the full vehicle rules for a scene or two scenes throughout an entire campaign. For those types of situations, liberal application of boost and setback dice are all you're going to need. Am I driving a 30-year-old VW and I'm being chased by last year's model sports car? Well, they're going to get boost dice on their checks, and I'm going to get setback dice because my car is crappier compared to theirs. I don't need to worry about handling or system strain threshold or any of that stuff. I just know that their item that they're using, in this case a vehicle, is better, so it gets boost dice. Another example is in a Weird West game where the characters are traveling on a train, going out west, an adventure might happen on the train. There are tons of times where this happens in uh, film and literature, especially in westerns. Something happens on the train while going out west. Well, you still don't need vehicle rules for that because the train is the location where the adventure happens. The characters are not interacting with the vehicle. They're interacting with other characters on the vehicle. Same situation in a sci-fi game where the players are on a transport ship going from Earth to Mars. You don't need to know what the um, maximum speed is of the ship they're on because all the adventure happens inside the vehicle and the vehicle doesn't arrive at the destination until after the adventure is over. So it doesn't matter how fast the vehicle goes, it matters how quickly the players can complete the current adventure. And also one important thing to note is that vehicles operate on what's called planetary scale, which is different than what characters operate on, which is personal scale. I will get into the differences a little bit later, but just note that vehicles are planetary scale and characters are on personal scale. So as the Game Master, you have decided that you are going to use the vehicle rules for your, for your game. First thing to note is that there are seven characteristics and seven statistics for your vehicles. Characteristics are as follows. Handling, max speed, silhouette, defense, armor, hold trauma threshold, system strain threshold. Vehicle statistics include control skill, crew complement, passenger capacity, consumables, encumbrance capacity, price and rarity, and weapons. So for handling, it is a number ranging from negative 4 to positive 4, which is the number of boost or setback dice added to control skill checks when operating the vehicle. So if you have a minus 3 handling, you're adding 3 setback dice. If you're at plus 1 handling, you're adding 1 boost die. Maximum speed is an abstraction of both top speed and acceleration of the vehicle. One important thing to note is it is an abstraction of top speed and acceleration. It is a numerical range of 1 to 5. Regardless of the setting you're in, regardless of anything else, 1 is the slowest a vehicle can go and 5 is the fastest. If you're doing a Weird War II game where the fastest aircraft are propeller driven, the top speed is 5. 
if you are playing in a space opera game where the fastest speed is 20% the speed of light, that is speed five. Speed is an abstraction um, regardless of what setting, what time period, what anything is available. One is the slowest a vehicle can move, five is the fastest. Depending on your speed will depend on how many range bands that your vehicle is forced to move. Um, important thing to know here is that it is range bands, not move maneuvers. So if a vehicle is, say, long range from a target and it's forced to move one range band, well, that is that one range band gets it from long range to medium range. It would normally take a character two maneuvers to do that, but vehicles are movement is based on range bands, not move maneuvers. And that forced move happens either at the beginning of the pilot's turn or the end of the pilot's turn, their choice. If you're in a vehicle that has multiple pilots, you know, like one pilot, one co-pilot, whichever one goes first, that's when the forced movement happens. Silhouette. All y'all are familiar with silhouette. Characters are silhouette one. Small dogs are silhouette zero. Giants are silhouette two. Vehicles just go from one to ten. Vehicles also have defense and armor, which is just like you would expect defense and soak to work for characters, except armor is planetary scale for vehicles, which planetary scale is 10x that of personal scale. So one point of armor is worth 10 points of soak. Next up is hull trauma threshold and system strain threshold, which is just like wound threshold and strain threshold for characters, but planetary scale. So one hull trauma is 10 wounds or 10 damage. System strain um, is, again, 10x. So after the characteristics, we have the statistics, which uh, the first one is our control skill, which is what skill do we use to control the vehicle? Control skills include driving, piloting, and operating. Driving is anything on the ground. A car uses drive skill. A tank uses drive skill. Motorcycle uses drive skill. Piloting is anything that flies. So aircraft, it could be a jetliner, it could be a jet fighter, it could be a helicopter, it could be a small space cargo ship like a Millennium Falcon. Those are all piloting. Operating is anything that is large and requires multiple crew to utilize. Big examples include any capital ship, um, anything that's pretty much any waterbound or spacebound vehicle that is like Silhouette 5 or larger. A, a Silhouette 2 sailboat might actually require uh, operating as well because you have several people working together. Um, it's just any vehicle that requires multiple crew members uses operating. The Expanded Player's Guide on page 59 does mention unorthodox control skills in the uh, sidebar. Sometimes it's not just driving, piloting, or operating, but a rowboat could be athletics, or a horse-drawn carriage could be uh, riding. When the GM is creating a vehicle, definitely take a look at pages 59 and 60 of the Expanded Player's Guide for figuring out what the control skills should be. But if you're just using a pre-made vehicle, just know that anytime you make a check to operate the vehicle, it uses the control skill. Uh, next up is the crew complement, which is the optimum number of people needed in order to operate the vehicle properly. For a car, that's one person. For a semi-truck, one person. For a Silhouette 4 destroyer, you're probably looking at 100-ish people 
you know, because you, you have so many different moving parts, there's different departments in the vehicle. So larger vehicles will have a higher crew complement. Of course, you don't need to have that many in order to operate it. Um, we see plenty of examples in uh, fiction where a large vehicle is quote unquote operated by a crew as small as three or four people you know, each one operating one of the main systems. So they can't do everything because there's not enough bodies to go around, but they can still do basic moving from here and there. Um, if you have a gunner, you can still fire the weapons, but you don't have enough people in the engine room to repair critical hits or things like that. So you can operate it with less than the crew complement, but that's the optimal number. Next up is passenger capacity. That's how many non-crew people the vehicle can hold. An important thing to note with this is that it's a recommended number, it's not an absolute, because I'm sure we've all had situations where you've crammed people in, um, you know, when the backseat of your car, I mean, we've never done this, wink, wink, put three people in the backseat of a car when it only fits two, or um, you've seen plenty of times in sci-fi where one ship will take on the crew of another ship when that ship is in the middle of disintegrating, but you can only do that in limited capacity because life support only goes so far. So the passengers is a recommended number. You should rarely ever go over that. But if you do, note, note that there will probably be some setback dice added on checks because you have too many people in a very small space. Next up is consumables, which is how long a vehicle can go between refueling or, or filling up for a an automobile or a tractor trailer. It's just plain old fuel, how much gas in, in the tank. Um, for larger ships like uh, cruise ships or you know 747s where they not only transport people but they feed people, it's also food and water. Um, for submarines or space capable ships, it's also air, it's the life support, how long it can go before you need to top off your air tanks. Um, next up is encumbrance capacity, which is how much cargo can be carried. One thing to note is that the encumbrance numbers you find for various items are when just being carried, but when those items are being packed into crates and cargo containers, they are a lot more compact and easier to carry. If you turn to page 96 of Shadow of the Beanstalk, you will see the MAL sealed shipping container, which is a great template for any crate or cargo container used to ship large amounts of goods. It is a 15 encumbrance item that can carry up to 20 encumbrance worth of stuff inside it. Whatever the encumbrance of the crate, 33% more can be fit inside of it because it's packed tightly. Next up is price and rarity, which you are probably fairly familiar with at this point. Every piece of equipment, every weapon, every piece of armor, every piece of gear you have has a price and rarity. When dealing with vehicles, it is highly recommended to use the rules for restricted items found on page 84 of Shadow of the Beanstalk, which pretty much just says anything that is noted as restricted is illegal. Usually it, anything that's restricted is military-grade hardware as opposed to um, legally available to common citizenry. For example, right now today I could go on the internet and buy a car. No problem. I could even probably find a tractor trailer for sale, no problem. I'm not going to be able to hop on eBay and buy a fighter jet. I'm not going to be able to head on down to Walmart and pick up an aircraft carrier. 
So those things are restricted items that are only available to those with the proper clearance, or if you go through the black market, you can find it that way. Another great example of restricted items are weapons. In a space opera game, you know, most of the fiction and literature that we're familiar with, most of the player character ships have weapons. Well, uh, legally available point defense weapons that have like a range of short or maybe medium, but very low damage as a pirate deterrent because the space police can't be everywhere. So um, cargo ships are allowed to outfit themselves within a reasonable limit. So small uh, defensive minded weapons are allowed, but you cannot mount a restricted missile or torpedo launcher on your vehicle because that is an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. So whenever using vehicles, keep in mind what should and shouldn't be restricted. And that is up to GM discretion because they know their setting more than anybody else. Last statistic we have is weapons. How many weapons does a vehicle have and what's the weapon profile? It has the exact same profile as a personal scale weapon. It'll list the uh, skill used, which for vehicles is almost always gunnery. It'll tell you what the damage is, crit rating, range, any special qualities, just like you're used to seeing on the personal scale table. It's just a um, planetary scale weapon. Except, of course, there is a new quality introduced in uh, the vehicle rules called personal scale, which just means that this vehicularly mounted weapon uses personal scale and not planetary scale. So if it says damage 8, it's doing 8 personal scale damage and not 8 planetary scale, which would translate into 80 personal scale. For example, APCs and Jeeps and such in a modern day or weird war setting would have a personal scale machine gun mounted on it. And I have mentioned planetary scale a couple times already. So um, what is planetary scale? Quote directly from the rule book, planetary scale is just personal scale, but expanded. So planetary scale is 10 times the equivalent personal scale. One point of planetary scale damage is 10 points of personal scale damage, which is why Breach, which ignores one point of armor, also ignores 10 points of soak. Because planetary scale weapons use Breach, personal scale weapons mostly use Pierce. You might see Breach 1 on a personal weapon if it is an anti-armor weapon. Planetary scale also adds a sixth range band, which is strategic range which um, the best way to describe it is just to go ahead and read from the book. Strategic range is the sixth range band that represents distance beyond extreme range. At this range, people cannot see one another with the naked eye, nor can they interact without technological assistance. However, when you're using vehicles, especially one with advanced sensors or other magnification technologies, this is the furthest range at which you can interact with targets. So, Strategic range is pretty much at or beyond the horizon on um, when you're talking about a vehicle that is on the ground. If you're in space, it can be as far as the GM needs it to be for story reasons, because in space, everything is larger. And there's actually a sidebar on page 225 that explains um, how you can up the ranges in space because everything is so big and so vast while still sticking with the same um, range bands you're used to. An important note is that planetary scale still operate on the same range bands that characters do, which is why the forced move of a vehicle is in range bands and not move maneuvers. And so it's the same short, medium, long, engaged, and the added strategic range.
So now that we know what a vehicle is, what all the characteristics and statistics mean, it's time to get into the nitty gritty of vehicular combat, which is when you're going to use vehicles. Vehicles basically are classified into three different categories, two of which are actually specifically called out in the book. One, the other one is inferred based on it. So small vehicles are anything that's silhouette one through three. Capital ships are silhouette six through 10. So four and five are kind of in this nebulous, not small, not capital ship. Um, I like to call them large vehicles. If it is a military vessel, silhouette four and five is commonly referred to as subcapital ships. Big enough to have multiple crew, but small enough that they are not a ship of the line. So vehicular combat takes place very similar to the way personal scale combat works. You roll initiative, you decide who goes when, um, a character gets one maneuver, one action, they can take a second maneuver, blah blah blah, just like you're used to from chapter 6 of part 1, Combat Encounters. The main difference is that um, maneuvers and actions are, some are restricted to pilot only, some are not. A vehicle can only benefit from one pilot only action each turn, but as long as there's enough crew, non-pilot only actions can be done as long as there's people to do it and initiative slots. And then any vehicle can benefit from one pilot only maneuver a turn. And if the vehicle benefits from a second pilot only maneuver each turn, the vehicle must suffer two system strain because it's doing two maneuvers. Now, the pilot could perform both maneuvers, in which case they either have to uh, swap out their action for a second maneuver, or they have to suffer two strain themselves for doing two maneuvers. But some ships have a pilot and a co-pilot, so each one can use their maneuver to do a pilot-only maneuver, and so only the vehicle would suffer two system strain. Neither of the pilot or co-pilot would have to because they have only done one maneuver. Now that system strain is only for pilot-only maneuvers, for example, if the pilot were to perform the aim maneuver, then whether they did it once or twice, the vehicle doesn't suffer any system strain because it's not a pilot-only maneuver. That is a personal maneuver that the pilot is doing that just happens to benefit their vehicular action that turn. As far as what maneuvers we have available to us, um, just going to go down the list. The accelerate maneuver allows you to increase your speed. If you increase it by more than one, your vehicle takes system strain equal to the difference. You have the uh, brace for impact maneuver, which um, once you perform this maneuver until the beginning of the pilot's next turn, when they take damage, the pilot can have the vehicle take system strain up to its silhouette to reduce the damage by that amount. So a silhouette five ship that braces for impact can reduce incoming damage from each hit by up to five, since that's at silhouette, and it just suffers an equal number of system strain. Um, and also, it allows you to reduce the critical hit roll by 10 per point of system strain that it suffers, again, up to its silhouette. If this reduces the critical hit result to zero or less, then it ignores a critical hit. The decelerate maneuver is the opposite of the accelerate maneuver. It allows you to reduce your current speed by one or more. If you reduce it by more than one, then the vehicle suffers strain equal to the difference. The next up is the evade maneuver, which is the evade maneuver is something that you usually see starfighters perform or aerospace fighters in general, whether they're in space or in the atmosphere. This is the first and only pilot only maneuver that actually has a bunch of restrictions. 
you have to be silhouette four or less, which means that subcapital ships and capital ships cannot perform this maneuver because they're just too big and bulky, and you have to be moving at least speed three. But when you perform this maneuver, you upgrade the difficulty of all attacks made against your vehicle, as well as by all attacks made from the vehicle. So you're making it harder to hit you, but your gunners are having a harder time uh, attacking from your vehicle because you are performing evasive maneuvers. The last vehicular maneuver is the reposition maneuver. You have to be moving at least speed one. So if you're moving at speed zero, which means you're not moving, you obviously can't reposition, but it allows you to move the vehicle one range band. And of course, during the combat encounter, any number of personal maneuvers that are found in chapter six of part one can be performed if it makes sense. For example, the aim maneuver is perfectly acceptable because you can use that to aim your weapons before you fire. But the guarded stance maneuver, for example, gives a character melee defense one. It doesn't matter when you're in a vehicle and you're driving it, so that one doesn't really work. But if the vehicle is large enough, silhouette four or larger, where you can actually move around, there's not just a small cockpit with one or two people, you can use the move maneuver to move within a vehicle um, to go to different locations. So if you're on the bridge, use a move maneuver to get to the weapons, turret, gunner bay, whatever. Or if you're in the lounge and your ship takes a hit, you can use a move maneuver to go to engineering to do some damage control, that kind of thing. Use your common sense when figuring out what personal skill maneuvers are allowed and what makes sense. And then, of course, there are a lot of vehicular actions that you can perform. Only one pilot-only action is allowed per vehicle per turn, regardless of the number of pilots. Um, the first action that is presented is the dangerous driving action, which is a pilot-only action, and it requires a speed of one or higher. And this is pretty much the when the GM says, I don't know if you can actually do that with the vehicle, go ahead and give me a skill check. So then this is the dangerous driving action, which uses the control skill of whatever the vehicle is. So a car that is swerving in and out of traffic, give me a driving check. If you are a small, you know, so what, four or smaller spacecraft flying through an asteroid field, give me a, a piloting check. And the difficulty of the dangerous driving check is equal to the silhouette of the vehicle. Larger vehicles are harder to control than smaller ones. Pretty easy. But the more responsive the vehicle is, the easier it is to succeed. Therefore, if you have a positive handling, you're adding that number of boost dice to your dangerous driving check. And of course, if you have a negative handling, then you're adding that many setback dice. So if you're in a silhouette five or six vehicle with a negative three handling, probably better to just blast your way through it as opposed to try to maneuver around it because that is a really nasty negative dice pool. Another important thing to note with any check made with a control skill is that if you're traveling at speed three or four, you upgrade the check once. If you're traveling at speed five, you upgrade the check twice. So smaller vehicles are easier to control. Vehicles going at a slower speed are also easier to control. But if you absolutely must go as fast as possible, um, you're going to get a few upgrades to your check because you're just traveling too dang fast. Uh, next up is Blanket Barrage. This is uh, the first of two capital ship actions, and this is the fire all your guns and hope you hit something action. 
So you just make an average gunnery check with a specific weapon group and a specific fire arc. On a success, until the end of your next turn, all vehicles of silhouette 4 or smaller upgrade the difficulty of any combat check made against your vehicle once, plus an additional upgrade per 2 advantage. If their combat check generates 2 threat, they get hit by one of your weapons, taking damage equal to half of the weapon damage. If they generate a despair, then they suffer a hit that deals the full damage of your weapon. And so that's just the, I have lots of guns, I am shooting all these guns, trying to hit anything that gets within my firing range. The next action is our second um, capital ship action, which is called Concentrated Barrage. Both Blanket Barrage and Concentrated Barrage have a minimum silhouette of 5. Anything smaller just doesn't have enough guns in order for it to work, and a speed of 0 through 3. But Concentrated Barrage is all of my guns fire at that one target. So instead of making a combat check for each weapon that a capital ship will have when they can have literally three or four dozen weapons, it's just one action firing all of your guns. If you succeed, you may spend an advantage once on this check to increase the damage by the number of weapons fired. So if you're firing 15 weapons, the first advantage you generate, you spend that one advantage and you add 15 to the damage of that attack. So say you're firing uh, 15 weapons that have a damage of 6. I just spent an advantage and that now this attack has a base damage of 15 plus 6 is 21. Note that this action adds damage to the hit, it doesn't create a second hit. So armor is only taken into account once. So you're not doing one hit for 6, one hit for 15, you're doing one hit for 21, then subtract the armor, and it's still going to hurt. And both Blanket Barrage and Concentrated Barrage are designed specifically to avoid making dozens upon dozens of skill checks for all the various gunners and weapons systems on a vehicle. Mechanically speaking, is it quote-unquote better to make an attack check for each weapon? Well, yes, but then... Think of how long it takes for you to resolve one check. Now you're doing that 27 times for this one weapon system. That's your entire evening is going to be spent rolling attacks for this one vehicle. So just don't worry about being quote-unquote mechanically optimized. Use blanket barrage. Use concentrated barrage. Make it easy. Keep it cinematic. Keep the action flowing. Next up is our damage control action, which is the mechanics check to recover system strain, or whole trauma. Just like with a medicine check on characters, you can only do one damage control action to recover whole trauma each encounter. However, you can make as many checks as you want to to repair system strain. As a matter of fact, this is the only way outside of specific talents to recover system strain on a vehicle. Characters can spend advantage to recover personal scale strain, but vehicles cannot spend advantage to recover system strain. The only way to do it without a talent specifying otherwise is the damage control action. That being said, on page 48 of Shadow of the Beanstalk, there is a tier 2 talent, Determined Driver, that allows you to spend a story point as an incidental to have the vehicle that your character is operating recover system strain equal to the ranks in their control skill. So there are talents available for it, while well, there is a specific talent. But without that talent, damage control is the only way to recover system strain. The difficulty is based on how much system strain or hull trauma the vehicle has currently endured. There's a nice table on the bottom of 228. 
Um, you can also use the damage control action to repair critical hits. A small bit of nomenclature is that vehicles suffer critical hits, whereas characters suffer critical injuries. Um, so if a vehicle has a critical hit, you can use a damage control action in order to uh, repair that critical hit. The next action we have is gain the advantage, which is the dogfighting action. Uh, it's a pilot-only action available to vehicles silhouette 4 or smaller, but you have to be traveling at speed 4 or 5, because if you're not traveling fast enough, you can't gain the advantage. In order to perform the gain the advantage action, you make a skill check using the vehicle's control skill with a difficulty based on your relative speed to your target. If you're going faster than your target, it's an easy check. If you're going the same speed as your target, it's an average check. If your speed is one lower than theirs, it's a hard check. For some reason, the table on page 229 includes an option for if your speed is two or less than the vehicle, it's daunting. But since you have to be traveling speed four or five, it's not possible to be going two or more lower. So you can just ignore that line on the table because it's impossible to do that. So if you succeed, then you have gained the advantage over your target. As long as you have the advantage, you upgrade all combat checks made against that target twice. In addition, you upgrade the difficulty of all combat checks made by them against you twice. And that also includes any gunners you have in your vehicle, it's not just the pilot. So if you are in a Silhouette 4 vehicle traveling speed 4 and you have three gunners, you gain the advantage. All three gunners get the, um, the upgrade on the combat check. It's not just the pilot. So it's really great for multi-crew vehicles, but also if your vehicle is small and doesn't have a lot of hull trauma or has really low armor, it's good to gain the advantage to um, make it harder to hit you. Now, if a target has gained the advantage on you, you can use the gain the advantage action on your next turn, uses the same difficulty, but increase it by one. And if you succeed, you have the advantage and they don't anymore. And then we have a list on page 229 of several different additional vehicle actions, which can be performed by anybody who's on the vehicle. Um, including plot course, co-pilot, jam your enemy's communications, boost defense, manual repairs, which allows you to repair a whole trauma threshold using athletics instead of mechanics, fire discipline, which is great for um, a captain to perform to give boost dice to combat checks, scan the enemy to know what capabilities they have, hack the enemy systems, allows you to compromise the target's defenses for a little while, then intercept projectiles makes it harder for an enemy to attack you with guided weapons. And then, of course, the last action option in the vehicle rules are perform a combat check with a vehicle weapon. It is very similar to performing a combat check with a personal scale weapon. You're just using a planetary scale weapon instead. Each weapon may be fired once per round. So even if you have multiple gunners, each weapon can still only be fired once per round. If you have a lot of gunners, hopefully your vehicle has a lot of guns for them to use. It mentions that the target must be within the firing arc of the weapon, as determined um, by relative positions and the GM's discretion. But since there are no actual rules for firing arcs or positions, because rounds are fluid and are roughly a minute, give or take, you know, just ask the GM, are they in range and the right arc of my weapon? 
If yes, go ahead and use it. If not, figure out how to get them in that firing arc. Um, the difficulty is still based on your range, just like for personal scale. Uh, there is the strategic range band, which is a formidable uh, combat check, which is five difficulty dice. And also important to note is the size difference uh, rule on page 109. If your target is two or more silhouette larger than you, reduce the difficulty by one. If your target is two or more silhouettes smaller than you, increase the difficulty by one. So a Silhouette 6 capital ship firing at a Silhouette 2 starfighter is going to increase the difficulty by one difficulty die just because it's such a small target. Like mentioned before, most vehicle-mounted weapons are planetary scale, so if you're shooting at a personal scale target, remember to multiply the final damage by 10, which means that vehicular weapons hurt when they hit a character. They just hurt. Because even if it is a very weak vehicle weapon, a planetary scale of one, say you get two successes on your combat check. That's three damage. Multiply that by 10, you just hit a character for 30 damage. It doesn't matter who your character is. It doesn't matter if they have reinforced armor. If you get hit with a planetary scale weapon, you're going to be over your wound threshold and you're going to take a critical injury. It is recommended on page 225 that if a planetary scale weapon hits a personal scale target, and it inflicts a critical injury, it's recommended to add 50 to the resulting critical injury roll just because it's a big weapon. It's gonna hurt. It doesn't matter how tough you are. You're getting hit with a weapon designed to take out tanks. You're gonna feel it. You know, with that plus 50, it could actually kill you in one, in one hit. So rule of thumb, if you're a personal scale target, do not get shot at by a vehicle, plain and simple. Of course, if that weapon is a personal scale weapon, then it uses the normal rules and it's not as deadly. Like mentioned earlier, um, APCs, Jeeps, things like that that are designed to protect um, infantry, not necessarily attack vehicles, will probably use personal scale weapons, so you're less likely to get taken out in one shot. And then of course on page 230 we have a critical hit table, which has 12 results ranging from easy to 154 plus is vaporized, the vehicle is immediately destroyed, consumed in a large and dramatic fireball, nothing survives. But because Genesis is a generic system, they have a pretty generic critical hit result. Uh, for example, you have uh, 64 through 72 is propulsion damaged. The vehicle's propulsion is compromised. There is a sidebar on page 221 that describes all of the vehicular components and what happens when they're compromised. When your propulsion is compromised, you may not perform the accelerate maneuver, and each round your current speed drops by one until it hits zero. Every component has a slot on the critical hit result. Some of them allow you to get hit several times. For example, weapon damage. One weapon of the attacker's choice is compromised. Military vehicles usually have at least one weapon, if not more, so sometimes it takes multiple weapon damage critical hits in order to completely take out weapon systems but that all is determined by the uh, vehicle that's being hit. And of course, just like with personal scale combat, every existing critical hit on the vehicle adds 10 to the result. If your weapon has a vicious quality, then it adds 10 per point of vicious. Another thing to note is that in the expanded player's guide, they introduce on page 62 the massive rule, which is that the vehicle is huge and unlikely to be destroyed by a single lucky hit. When making an attack targeting this vehicle, the critical rating of any weapon used is counted as two higher. 
and this should only be given to vehicles of Silhouette 7 or larger. So even if you're shooting a crit 1 weapon, you still need to generate 3 advantages or 1 triumph to score a critical hit because the vehicle is just so dang big. And that is, in a nutshell, the vehicle rules. Um, if there are any questions about it or you need any clarification, uh, you can head over to anchor.fm forward slash excess hyphen advantage. There is a voicemail button. You can go ahead and click on that and uh, send me a voicemail. You can find me on Reddit, on Facebook, on uh, Discord, in the Genesis communities. Feel free to private message me if you want to or leave a comment on whatever post that you find for this episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, let me know if there's anything that can be clarified and all of that. So, so thank you very much for joining me in this deep dive into vehicles. And remember, regardless of success or failure of your role, always check for excess advantage. This has been Excess Advantage. The intro and outro music is Take a Chance by Kevin Cloud from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review where you find your podcast, as it helps others find us. If you'd like to donate to help support the podcast, please visit ko-fi.com forward slash excess advantage.